Well, hello and welcome to the Catherine Plano podcast, where we share tips, tricks, tools, and strategies that you can implement in your life for massive improvements. Every week, we have change instigators, compelling creators, and interesting humans who are breaking the cycle of convention and redefining success one mission at a time. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning, connection, and resilience into your life. Now let's jump into your weekly dose of practical goodness. difference between the brain and the mind. When you make a big decision, do you listen to your mind, your heart or your gut? And why do we ignore our gut instincts, our intuition and trust our mind only to find ourselves exactly where our gut told us we would end up with? Why do we do that? Well, if you want to have a better understanding of the differences between the brain, mind, consciousness, empathy, integration and compassion, then this is the episode for you. This week's special guest, we have Dr. Daniel Siegel, who is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center of UCLA. An award-winning educator, he is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and recipient of several honorary fellowships. Dr. Siegel has published extensively for both professional and lay audience with five New York Times bestsellers and now with his latest book, Interconnected, we, as the integration of self, identity and belonging, exploring the nature of how our experience of what we call self emerges across the lifespan. It's now time to tune into this one super amazing human being. Enjoy. Well, today I have another special guest for you all. We have the amazing Dr. Dan Siegel. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Catherine. It's a pleasure. And before we get into it, I would just like to announce, this is the first, after seven years of uh, doing interviews, we have Dr. Dan on a walking machine, which I think is pretty cool, (laughs) just so that you know, and we were just having a conversation about movements, and we might weave that into the interview today. But the way that we love to start the show, Dan, is we always love to ask our guests, what's your story? What inspired you to do what you do today? Mm. Well, uh, thanks for that question. You know, I would say that um, being raised in a very scientific home uh, made me fascinated with science. But when I finished my, you know, uh, college training in certain area of science and went to medical school, there was an absence of a focus on what someone felt, for example, if they were given a diagnosis that was serious, you know, you just tell them what the lab results are or the tests show and say, sorry, you're dying. And the the teachers, uh, I couldn't really understand what they were trying to teach me, but they would walk away and never talk to the patients about how they felt or 
what the meaning of that information was, what the impact was on their social lives, for example. So I ended up dropping out of school. And during that time of um, dropping out, you know, I, I really wondered, well, what am I doing with my life? I had always thought I would be a physician, but I didn't want to become like those teachers. So I tried out other possible professions and ultimately decided to go back to school. But what really inspired me then, which continues to inspire me today, is to say, you know, what is the mind that is the experience we have of subjectivity, the feeling of something, you know, whether it's a painful thing, like you're given a diagnosis or, or joy and awe, what is subjective experience really made from? And how do we know we're having that inner mental experience of joy or sadness, you know, and then um, how do we then process our understanding of it in what's called, you know, information processing. So all of that stuff falls under the word mind. So I just became very um, driven to see if I could understand everything I could about the mind, see why it seemed to be absent from modern medicine, uh, to try to discover how the absence of seeing the mind, and I made up a word mind sight before I went back to school, just to remind me that what I learned in my time away was very real. And not only was it real, but it was really important. Um, so the mindset term helped me to, you know, remember that when I saw professors who didn't show that ability, that that didn't mean I needed to become like them. So that's, that I would say was one of the most important moments in my personal and, you know, academic development, my schooling, that led to pretty much everything I've been doing the last, you know, 40 years, or actually, yeah, 40 years it's been. That's amazing. And it's so true. When you do get given the uh, the diagnosis of uh, a result of some sort, uh, they don't consider how and what you were experiencing at the time they delivered that information. I myself have gone through that a couple of times and it is horrifying. Of course, then you go home and you do Google it and it makes it worse because you never Googled stuff, obviously. Um, yeah. So how would you describe the difference between the brain and the mind? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, as I, I went forward in my own training, I had this experience of uh, basically becoming a psychiatrist right at the time that was um, known as the decade of the brain, at least in the United States. And everyone was building on what Hippocrates had said 2,500 years before, which is the mind is simply what the brain does, basically. And the grandfather of modern psychology, William James, reaffirmed that. And so pretty much people would equate the word mind with brain activity. But as I was becoming trained, um, you know, working as a therapist, as a psychiatrist, uh, and had studied about the brain when I was in medical school, I knew that subjective experience, even if it was only dependent on what goes on inside your head, which is not true, but even if that were true, it doesn't make the term subjective experience, the felt texture of life. What does it feel like when I say, hello, Catherine? You know, that has a feeling to it. And while it may depend on the brain and the brain's activity, it's just not the same. So the first thing to say is that the subjective, what's called qualia, the, the feeling, the sense of being alive is not uh, the same as brain activity, which is basically 
electrochemical energy flow inside of the skull with a bunch of interconnected neurons. So, yeah, so that basically allows us to, you know, see that mind at least is subjective experience. And the second thing is that consciousness, the way you're aware that you're having the feeling when I say, hello, Catherine, that while it depends on circuits in the brain, and if you damage them, you certainly affect consciousness and even subjective experience. It doesn't make it the same as brain activity. So we have this fascinating thing called awareness uh, that we can talk about too. And um, all of that uh, is an important way that we say, yeah, we have a sensation, we have awareness of that sensation, but we also symbolize things. Um, Like right now, if I say, hello, Catherine, you know, that's a bunch of sound, which is air molecules moving between us. And, you know, if we spoke a different language than English, you may not understand the meaning of hello, Catherine, right? If I say, you know, hola, Catrina, you know, that might be Spanish, you know, that you, if you understood that. So that's called information processing. It's basically a pattern of energy with symbolic value. And that is not only inside the head, that is fully embodied. And it's also extended beyond the body in our communication with each other, for example. And even in writing a book or reading a book, it's embedded in the pages of a book. And now we have the internet, which is basically an extended mind. So information processing is part of our mental lives, and it's not limited by skull or skin. I love that. I've always looked at the mind as almost like the behavior of the brain. Um, And when I've thought about mind or mindset, I've looked into it myself. And and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it because some, just some of the things that I've learned, the difference between the conscious, the subconscious, and then the unconscious. And it depends on uh, the research you look at. Some people don't even use the subconscious. They just say the conscious and the unconscious. Um, and so my understanding, the awareness is that very much the conscious. And then the emotional stuff that you talk about is the subconscious. And then the unconscious is really where all our patterns and programs reside from our experiences over time. I'd love to hear more about what your thoughts are between the different levels of consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in in looking into this as a therapist and then also being trained as a scientist, you know, uh, one thing that's fascinating about consciousness is there's no absolute definition of what that is and there's no uh, agreement at this moment anyway on like what is it made of and what is it all about. So, you know, contemplative practices have been speaking about this for thousands of years, way before there was Western-based empirical science. And even in indigenous teachings, there are lots of thoughts about, you know, how consciousness influences our experience of, you know, self and identity and belonging. So consciousness is central to our lives, and it's been that way for thousands of years. So um, for me, when I was looking at this idea that, okay, the mind is information processing some of it is in consciousness some of it is not just as you're pointing out so if you say well how can you have information processing that's not in your awareness how can that happen because energy flow is the basis of information processing and you don't have to have that energy flow inside whatever circuits or networks or experience that includes consciousness. So it's no problem once you say, okay, awareness is actually a small fraction of what the mind is capable of doing. 
Now, that being said, there's a fourth aspect of the mind beyond information processing, consciousness, and subjective experience that may get more at the heart of what you're saying. And that can simply be called self-organization. So there's a, there's a way where systems that are called complex systems, they tend to regulate their own unfolding. And in many ways, what happens beneath awareness is a process that's really trying to organize how we experience ourselves in the moment. And that does not necessarily involve, in fact, usually does not involve consciousness. So self-organization is a really important aspect of how this energy flow is happening. And when a uh, long time ago, 1992, I had about 40 scientists together to say basically exactly your question. What's the connection between the mind and the brain? No one could agree on what the mind was. There is no definition of the mind in any of the fields that study it, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but everyone could agree you know, pretty much about the brain, all these interconnected neurons up in your head, connected to the whole body. So the group was going to disband and I had to present something to them if they agreed to come one more time. There was so much tension because no one could agree what this mind business was. So I said, what if we say that, you know, this fourth facet of mind can be defined this way. The emergent self-organizing, meaning it's part of a complex system. So it emerges from the interaction of the stuff of the system, in this case, energy flow. And what is it? It's regulating its own becoming. So it's emergent self-organizing. And here's the trick of uh, seeing this definition as distinct from brain, because this self-regulatory process is both embodied and relational. So the formal definition is the emergent self-organizing embodied, meaning it's not just up in your head, it's in your whole body and relational, like it's happening right now between you and me and everyone listening to us, the embodied and relational process. And what's that process doing? It's regulating energy and information. And the way you regulate something basically is you monitor what's going on. Like when you're regulating a bicycle, you have to see where you're going, feel the balance of the bike, listen for sounds. That's the monitoring. But the second part of regulation is you have to modify. So when we say the mind is a regulatory process in this definition, it says that you can strengthen your mind by teaching yourself how to monitor with more stability. So you see more details, you see with more focus, you see with more clarity. And then once you see that experience of energy flow with all those details, you now can do the second thing, which is to modify it. And the amazing thing about modifying or modulating, you know, changing something is you can then say, well, how do you optimize this self-organizing thing? And there is a process that mathematics says for complex systems, which is you allow elements of the system become different and you allow them to then become linked. And in the linkage, they don't lose their differences. So that we're going to call integration. And it turns out, this is back from 1992, that, that I was able to propose this weird idea that integration is what mental health is made of. And there's tons of science now since that time to support that notion. So we have not only a definition of the mind that's been around now for 30 years, we have a corollary to it that a healthy mind is a mind that creates integration within the body and within our relationships with people and with nature. That goes back to that whole mind-body connection, right? 
it's it's um it's the holistic approach i was just thinking and i was trying to think who who um was saying how to shift our mindset and and i'd like to hear your thought on it um imagine being in a really bad mood imagine you've just had a fight with your partner and you're aggravated and agitated and it's it's up to you you can shift your mind apparently by let's say if i was skipping down the hallway and down the stairs that will help shift my mind because my mind is going hang on a minute you've just let all these neurons fire uh, of of uh, highly emotions of of anger whatever you were experiencing but now you're skipping uh, and so they create a bit of a um uh, a bit of a between the heart and the brain that the, it's a, a a way to shift our mindset so skipping apparently is a great way when we're talking about um, a healthy mind is a great way to shift a mindset what are your thoughts about that yeah now when you say mindset you mean the state of mind you're in yes yeah state of yeah, mind yeah great great because there's also a, a researcher named carol dweck writes yes. about mindset and that's a different kind of thing yes, but yeah so a state fixed. of mind my, your mind state yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. The, the 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 state of mind we have is not only a, much more than what goes on inside your head it's it's exactly what you're saying it's fully embodied and it's fully relational so what happens with you and your partner is not only like icing on the cake it's actually the main meal you know not even just dessert so uh, we are created within our relationships with other people, with nature, and our relationship with our body. So, so the body is not just like a transport vehicle for this all-important head brain. Uh, in fact, there are, there is a brain around your heart and a brain around your intestines that Antonio Damasio writes about beautifully. And you know, these are heart sources and gut sources of you know intuition and a heartfelt sense. It gives us gives us a feeling of our connection to people, you know. So people sometimes say, "Well, wait a second, wait a second. How can the mind be more than just brain activity?" Once you take the step of saying, "There's something about energy flow that allows us to see what's called an emergent property that is arising from that energy flow," then you realize, as I said earlier, the skull is not a barrier. Energy flow goes throughout the whole body. And, you know, we have energy flow that's happening between us. So then you see that the mind is actually emerging from energy flow and it's also helping regulate it. So how do we maneuver this energy flow? How do we, um, because I know, and I'm thinking it from an emotional point of view, um, where sometimes we react to things rather than respond. I, I always say responding takes practice because it's that, you know, you have the stimulus and then you have the the choice, either react or respond. There's space between the two. And I always think about that takes a level of mind control uh, where you have a choice between the two. Um, but you're talking about energy. How do we maneuver this energy and you were talking about integration too i'd love to hear more about that how do we maneuver and work with this energy to to help with the integration to help with the respond rather than react yeah absolutely so one way of expanding the notion of reacting uh rather than responding is uh by looking at something called chaos and something called rigidity and when a system is not integrated, 
it's like a river, you, you know, the central flow is harmony and it's flexibility and it's, you know, what we aim for, that central flow of integration. But imagine two banks of a river, one is chaotic, one is rigid. So reactivity can express itself as either chaotic outbursts, or even you can become reactive and shut down. I'm not going to talk to you now, you know, like this kind of thing. So what's helpful, I think, is to look at chaos and rigidity as a, a system that is no longer integrated in that mind state, if you want to call it that. So reactive states often involve a feeling of threat that then turns on um, some networks beneath the cortex that are about fighting or fleeing or freezing or even fainting. And these deep networks are often beneath the surface of awareness, their activity, and the energy flow that's going through them is often triggered by something we're not even initially aware of. So when you talk about that pause between impulse and action, you know, what that pause is, is it's awareness. And when you can use higher parts of your brain to basically go, ooh, I think what that person just did felt threatening to me, either physically threatening or psychologically threatening or socially threatening, or there's so many ways of feeling threatened. So I don't feel trust. Ooh, I can feel I'm getting reactive now. I want to fight this person. Or I want to flee. Or, you know, I feel like I don't know whether to fight or flee, so I freeze. And then instead of those activating three Fs, the fourth F is I'm just collapsing out of helplessness. So you can use awareness to say, oh, my lower networks are getting in this reactive state, so I'm starting to shut down. So then what you do in the space of awareness is you can modify that. You can ask the question, am I really threatened? Yeah. This person's really trying to hurt me. Am I in physical danger? Yes, I am. Well, then run. Or, you know, sometimes a reactive state that happens really fast is really important to follow, you know, and sometimes it's not. So, so we should be clear. Reacting is sometimes good. You want to assess whether this is actually a reaction to, you know, to take care of your physical well-being. Sometimes it's psychological or social. And then when you start acting like it's a, a you know, saber-toothed tiger about to eat you, you know, that's not so helpful. And then at night, you're fretting about it and worrying about it. And you can activate your own networks of threat, even with your own imagination and memory. So you wake up at four in the morning, you know, and you're worried about this, worried about that. So, you know, the way you handle that is you can actually do imagery to help yourself relax. You can talk to the part of your brain system, basically, that's checking for danger and say, it's okay. I see the threat and breathe into that. So breathing exercises can help. There's lots of ways with awareness, you can intentionally modify the energy flow that is you know, driving itself in a non-integrated way through your reactive circuits. As you're uh, explaining, I think that uh, a level of awareness takes the embodiment to be in your body as you are experiencing uh, whatever you are experiencing, a level of consciousness, but that's not the case. I find that most of the times we go off on a tangent depending on, I guess, your experiences. So how does that because I'd love to, I know this has probably got something to do with integration. How does it um, play out? Let's say if I look at my timeline and I've experienced certain emotional, significant emotional events over time, and I'm sure we all have, 
how can we become so conscious in the now moment, in the present moment, as it's taking place without allowing these patterns or programs that live in that deeper part of our unconscious mind to take over? Right. Well, first of all, to be really kind to ourselves is a good starting place because even if they take over, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. So what you do within awareness is you're able to actually go, oh, wow, look at that pattern, active again. So, you know, instead of beating yourself up for this experience you just had, just take note of it. Say, you know, I can always begin again and let me do take two on that. You know, that was just a habit I've been in that I'm trying to undo. Now, when you start to undo habits, part of it is, you know, uh, unlearning what you learned and then learning something new. Um, And that also takes awareness. So, you know, we have a a practice called the wheel of awareness that people do from our website. And it's really rewarding to see that when you cultivate, you know, it's basically a hub of a wheel where we put the symbol of awareness, the rim or all the things you could be aware of. And then you have a singular spoke, you move around the rim to link the differentiated things you're aware of. Anyway, people start to become very familiar with pure awareness and that space where the pause comes from, which is the hub. So even, you know, young children can actually just see a drawing of this wheel and it can be empowering them to go, I see, I was lost on my rim when I was about to hit that kid for taking my block. I don't want to get in trouble again. I also don't want to hurt anybody. So I've got to take a little break, go back to my hub and not hit him. So that, that hub of the wheel is a visual image and then in a practice as an adult, you know, you can actually do a, a reflective meditative practice where you learn to rest in that hub and all sorts of amazingly wondrous, almost magical sometimes things start to become available to you when you start to live not in the hub, but from the hub of that wheel of awareness. As you're saying that too, it makes me think about the practice that I am practicing and still to this day practicing and haven't professed it, but it's sitting in my center uh, because my mind is very, very busy. I overanalyze, overthink. I'm like very much in the head a lot of the times. And so my practice for me was to get into my heart and drop into my center, my heart as often as possible to experience in the now present moment and not be taken away by whatever's going out here. So as you were saying, I felt like I was sitting in the center of the wheel and I could see around the wheel because I've also practiced being the observer of, of, uh, you know, played the observer for one day. And my intention was today I'm just going to be the observer and see what happens. But once again, you can only do that. That takes a level of consciousness because you can only do that for a short time before, boom, you get taken away with unconscious programs. Right, right, exactly. Well, that's really beautiful, Catherine. And that practice you have is great because we all have proclivities. You know, some of us are not so much in the head and are just living from the gut or living from the heart. You know, these are kind of centers of energy flow, if you will. So if you are a head type, then what's going to happen is literally the brain in the head is sometimes called an anticipation machine. So it's going to try to predict the future to try to get some kind of feeling of certainty. So you can say, well, this happened before, so this is probably going to happen again. I can get ready for the worst thing that's going to happen. All these things that you can preoccupy yourself with if you're a head type person like I am too. So when you say the phrase, 
I had to go down to my heart. Um, one way of understanding that is you took awareness. This is something I'm going to do. So that is called an intention. I am going to try to focus on my heart. And then you took something, a third thing. So we have awareness, intention. The third thing is attention. Now, what attention does is it literally drives energy flow to where you're focusing attention. And so there's a phrase that I made up just to try to remember this, where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection grows. So, so by intentionally saying, hey, I'm a head type, I don't, I'm not really in my body much, you know something, I have the intention to change that. And I'm, that's in my awareness now, so I'm gonna intentionally direct my attention down to my heart, literally in your body, not a metaphor, but literally that organ inside that body of yours. So then what that is doing, and, and some colleagues uh, at UCLA where, where I'm a, a clinical professor, you know, some colleagues found that if you do that regularly, you actually change the interconnections of the neural systems that allow you to have more awareness of your body. So if it were just barely there before, you can actually strengthen it and strengthen it. And when you do this as a daily practice, that state that you create of being aware of my heart becomes a trait in your life because you've changed the neural networks in your nervous system. I love that. I love that. And I, I guess the other thing that bubbled up for me just now is the when you were saying some people can even drop into their gut, I call that intuitive intelligence. But the thing for me is when in, intuitively you know something doesn't feel right, and yet the mind gets in the way and talks you out of uh, your intuition to only then find yourself, you go through the process to then, you know, find yourself, I knew this was going to happen, but why did I ignore my gut? Why did I right. listen to the mind? And I hear people do that all the time. What is that? Right. Well, exactly. You know, and I would just ask how you feel about an edit to say that it's all your mind but you want to get out of your head, right? So this is where people sometimes, because I've written a bunch of books with the word mind in it, and people think I'm talking about just the intellect or you know, your thinking. And no, no, no. I mean, I mean, anything related to subjective experience is part of the mind and the mind is fully embodied. So the mind happens not just up in your head, which is unfortunately, sometimes people use the word mind just for that. So um, I'll just I'll just build on what you're saying and, and say uh, as, as a story, you know, I once uh, had a, um, a friend call me saying, you know, his daughter was really having a hard time deciding, you know, where to go to college. She she got into a couple of colleges. She couldn't just couldn't decide. She was frozen in her um, uncertainty. She just didn't know what to do. So I, I, I knew her since she was a little kid. And so I said, OK, let's go through a review. I want you to realize that you have three brains in your body. She goes, what? I said, yep, there's a brain in your head. Of course, we know about that one. But there's a brain around your heart. That's a parallel distributed network of neurons that can process information. And there's a brain around your intestines. So we can just say that's your gut, your heart, and your head brain. She goes, okay. I said, so let's have a conversation. What are the schools you got into? Okay, I got school A, school B, school C, fine. So what does your head think about school A? Oh my God, head, my head really wants to go there. It says that's the most familiar. I got to do that. Okay, great. 
What does your heart say about A? I just, my heart isn't into it. And what does your gut say? Oh, it would be a big mistake to go. That's my intuition, right? I said, okay, cool. All right, let's let's do the same thing for, you know, college B, college C. And we did it. So there was college C where the heart said, I really long to go there. It feels absolutely right. The gut said, absolutely, this is where I need to be. And the head said, oh, it's so far away and it's so new and it's so different from what I thought or expected I would be doing, which is college A, you know, that I, I, I don't want to listen to my heart and my gut. So then we had a big conversation, you know, looking at all the choices. And I talked to her and I said, you know, these are all informing you as a whole person. And so let's just do a, a, an imaginary thing. Imagine that you went to school A and went to school B and went to school C. And now you and I are together during winter break and um, we're hanging out because I'm a friend of the family. And I said, and what do you think in each of those cases? Oh, my God, I should have gone to school C. I said, OK, well, there you go. <laughs> and and that's where she went and she couldn't be happier you know and maybe she would have been happy at the other schools we don't know but she followed her heart she took her gut instinct and all the things she had a heartfelt sense about and and a gut feeling about really panned out to be you know very true they 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 ended up all sorts of different things that happened in the school were things she couldn't have predicted and she just had a feeling about it and it turned out to be true now, it doesn't always work out that way, but that's an example of, you know, what I think we're talking about. Thank you. I've just had an epiphany. Thank you for that. Because it is mind-body connection, of course. Your gut, it's still your mind. So is that the integration yeah. you speak about when you check in with your head, heart, and, and gut? Yeah. So there are nine domains of integration. And one of them is just what you're saying, Catherine. It's vertical integration, meaning, you know, your head, your your heart, your gut are vertically distributed. And you want to differentiate them like I did with this young woman um, and then link them together, you know. And when you go through each of the nine domains, like the wheel of awareness would be another domain, domain of integration of consciousness, you know, where you're differentiating the different elements of consciousness, including the knowing in the hub from all the knowns on the rim. And when you get integration going, it has these qualities of things become flexible, adaptive. They have this quality of coherence. They hold well together over time. They're resilient. They're energized with you know vitality, and they're stable, meaning they're reliable. And that that spells the word faces, by the way. That's what we mean by harmony. So what's really interesting is that when you look at each of these nine domains of integration, um, you can basically understand almost all of the suffering that we humans uh, sadly go through. And then when you detect the chaos or rigidity that's in that suffering. You can say, oh, there's integration impaired there. Let me figure out which of the nine domains I need to do my personal work. Or if you're a therapist or a parent, I got to work with my child or work with my client, my patient or myself, you know, to try to promote this kind of integration. I love that. I really do. And I guess another uh, thing I did want to talk about was the science of compassion, empathy, because I'd love to hear more about, so this is my understanding, the comp comp empathy is standing in somebody's shoes and seeing through their eyes, their, what hearing how, what, you know, hearing and, and experiencing what they're experiencing. Uh, sympathy is feeling sorry for someone and compassion is 
walking a mile with somebody side by side but not in their shoes because I understand like I'm a huge empath. I personally take on other people's loads because I it's something I unconsciously do. So I'd love to really unpack the piece about compassion. What exactly does that mean uh, and empathy? Yeah, that's great. That's such a great question. And, you know, it is important to, to define exactly what people mean by those words. So some scientists would say that empathy has at least five components. So one is exactly the one you're saying, feeling another person's feelings. Um, now, even when we begin with that first component of empathy, you can feel another person's feelings, but realize they're that other person's feelings. They're not mine. So let's just call that empathic resonance. So like when, when strings on a guitar resonate with each other, they don't become each other. They just influence each other. So even the first one, empathic resonance, feeling another's feelings, doesn't mean you get lost in their emotional experience. It means you're resonating because of it. So that's the first thing. So you can retain differentiation. So you're different while you're establishing linkage. But the four other features of empathy uh, are important to note. One is taking on their point of view that it's called perspective taking. Like I could imagine if I were Catherine looking through her glasses, how would that be to have that perspective? And that's, a, that's different from just, you know, sharing another person's feelings. The third facet of empathy that people talk about is called empathic understanding. So you go, oh, okay, well, I know Dan and Dan had this kind of family life when he grew up and now he's having this kind of experience. So if I were him, I imagine, this is the mindset piece, I imagine he might be really frustrated, you know, with, you know, something going on in the weather or politics or, or you know, we pick your thing. So you, that would be called empathic understanding or cognitive empathy. That's a really important part of empathy. And all of these are part of mindset, which includes these different aspects of empathy. A fourth facet is something rarely talked about, but it's called empathic joy. And what that means is you're really happy for another person's happiness and success. It's one of the most underdeveloped empathic capacities. Imagine a world where we're just trying to promote each other's well-being. You know, and, and that's cool when it's your partner. But imagine if we just do this in the general world. So that's empathic joy. And the fifth facet, which, you know, is the link to compassion is called empathic concern. And what it means is, you know, I'm feeling what's going on with you. That's empathic resonance. I'm, you know, taking on your perspective. I can see from your point of view that this is really hard for you. Um, you know, I can understand given all the things I, I know about your situation now, where you've been in the past, what might happen in the future, you might be feeling a form of suffering, you know, like helplessness or terror, you know, so I can imagine into that, you have that, and I'm sensing in terms of joy, you're not very happy right now. So I, there's no empathic joy, because you're actually feeling pretty scared. And empathic concern says, I care about your suffering. And then that's a window. Empathic concern is a window that opens up other networks in the brain. So they're somewhat distinct that then says, oh, let me activate compassion. So what compassion is, and lots of people define it different ways, but Paul Gilbert is a wonderful researcher and his 
really, I think, foundational way of describing it is this. I can sense suffering. So you can have internal compassion. But let's talk about compassion for what we call another person. You know, I sense the suffering in that other person. Number one, I sense it. Number two, I make sense of it. I start thinking about it. Wow, what does this suffering mean for you? Like if I were a doctor giving a diagnosis that was really painful and difficult and, you know, like a lethal diagnosis, serious diagnosis, then if I were compassionate, I would sense your pain from that diagnosis. I would then make sense of it, not only sense it, but make sense. And then number three is I'm going to take action, even if it's just bearing witness or putting my hand on your shoulder that shows you that I've felt your pain, that I'm reflecting on it, trying to make sense of what to do. And then I'm doing something to try to reduce your pain and your being alone with it. So compassion comes straight out of empathy. You know, we don't have to pit them against each other, which some people do. You know, empathic concern is a fundamental part of empathy. It allows us to be compassionate. So often you hear people say, um, be compassionate to thyself. And so I... I'm very good at being compassionate with others and empathetic with others, but not with myself. And I know others struggle as well. So how do we come, how do we become better at becoming compassionate towards ourselves? Yeah. So I like to use the word inner compassion uh, rather than self-compassion. And the reason is, I mean, I just wrote a book called Intraconnected, which urges us to, um, stop seeing like we do in modern times the word self as equal to the individual uh, the self is kind of a center of experience if you look at the science of self and that center doesn't have to be limited to your body it can be in your relationship with a loved one it can be in your family it can be in your community it can be in your nation it can be in the whole planet of human beings it can be in all of nature and as we have a kind of an identity lens that allows us to adjust where we identify that center as being so if self means center of experience then it's not confined again by skull or skin so you won't hear me say the phrase self-compassion even though there's research using that term and i just urge people to start using the term inner compassion because self experience is basically how we have a subjective sense of perspective and an agency and we have to start acting on behalf of the greater good of all human beings and all living beings so it's kind of actually quite an urgent issue, not just semantics. Um, so inner compassion, I think, is what you're asking about, Catherine. And one way to think about it is compassion and kindness are integration made visible. So we start with kindness, which means, and that's defined in a number of ways, but it, it's a positive regard. It's a gentleness. It's an honoring of vulnerability. So that if you mess up something, you know, you said something that wasn't so kind, to be kind to one's inner life means saying, I'm just human. And what can I do now to make amends first with myself, that I'm mad at myself that I did that, and then reach out to the other person, recognizing that to be human means that we're vulnerable. So another way of defining kindness is, you know, this honoring of one another's um, vulnerability so that you actually support each other, including your inner life, saying, yeah, I'm vulnerable because I'm human. I'm not a robot. 
I love that shift in words, by the way. I just had a bit of a, I felt it in my body just going from self to inner because I've looked at that as uh, self-compassion is a little bit, and there's always been a little bit of resistance for me because I think then I'm being uh, selfish. And I keep using, exchanging the words with not being selfish, but self-full. Sometimes we do need to to look within and work within. And I love that shift in language between self-compassion to inner compassion. Yeah, I think it, it really, yeah, it really, you know, it really empowers us because, you know, it, you do have a me for sure that's in the skin and case body you're born into, but you also are a we, you know, people close to you or, you know, again, all of humanity or all living beings, that's the we. So you're actually both, you're both a me and a we, and I like to say we, you know, this funny term, but the, but the liberating thing about we is that you say, well, if kindness and compassion are integration made visible, how can I bring those to me? And then you realize, well, it's an inner aspect and it's an inter aspect. From this body, I can bring compassion to other bodies, to other beings, right? And then you realize selfness, that is the center of experience with subjective experience, perspective and agency, spa. You know, you realize, okay, I can adjust my identity lens so I'm going to go out and try to help the forest near where I live. I'm going to try to really recycle. I'm going to try to minimize the carbon I'm emitting. I'm going to do all these things for myself. Because guess what? The planet is yourself, <laughs> right? And this is where I think the fun opportunity we have is that modern culture and modern languages have equated self with the individual. And I think it's actually killing us. And so we have an opportunity to go, whoops, we made a kind of lethal error that we still have time to correct. And it may be as simple as beginning by identifying this word self as, you know, this grounding of our identity and where we belong and just realizing, whoa, we have an identity lens that we can actually adjust. I love that. And it's so true. Absolutely. I am also very conscious of your time. And I would like to, before we go into our three shiny golden nuggets, Dan, I think we'll have to have you back on the show. There's so many questions I still have. Um, you mentioned vulnerability. And I'd love to understand exactly what that means, because it's something we speak about. And yet there's so much resistance in standing in your vulnerability saying, I can't do this alone. I need help. Why is there, and this is across the border, I do a lot of corporate work, I work with a lot of executives, why is it so hard for people to be vulnerable? You know, life is really challenging. And one of the things, uh, all the challenges, especially of modern life, hold is that we long for certainty so that we can try to predict what's going to happen next. And in that ability to be certain, we're trying to get some kind of guarantee, if we can, of safety, basically. So there's a fundamental way where if you expose a need you have that depends on other people, if you expose um, an aspect of your memory that you're not really ready to share or make sense of, all those would be examples of you know vulnerability, then, then what happens is you've really hugely increased the reality of uncertainty. And when people have that experience, it makes them extremely uncomfortable. They can feel very threatened. They can feel like, you know, I'm really in danger now. So all that reactivity starts to get activated. So much of what 
I think the journey of being human is about is learning to embrace the freedom and possibility that come when you really sense into uncertainty. There's a great quote on the Brooklyn Public Library from the artist Rashid that says, having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. Well, when you're wandering in an emotional conversation or literally physically wandering in your life through a journey you're on, you're vulnerable because you don't know exactly where you're going. You're not certain with stuff. So that flimsy fantasy of certainty she talks about is, I think, why people find vulnerability so hard. Because when you when you are really depending on someone else, you don't know how they're going to be. So people then construct all sorts of protective strategies to try to keep from being vulnerable. And, you know, I know there's lots of different writers who write about this, but one of the most important lessons I think we can get from that is that with seeing the mind as a regulatory process, you can actually deconstruct those protective walls. And to do that, and this is why the wheel of awareness becomes so important, to do that, you yourself inside of that body of yours can do a practice where you see what is that hub really about. Because when people start experiencing the difference between the hub and the rim, then all of the fantasies about certainty and the walls against protecting yourself from being vulnerable and I can't, I can't make a mistake and I can't cry, all those things are on the rim. But when you get to the hub, what's because I've done this now with 50,000 people in person, you know, the experience for those who take the microphone and share in workshops, the experience is an incredible resource that lets you realize that becoming present in life inherently is about uncertainty. And then the idea of vulnerability is just being present. And, and when they get the resource of that hub of the wheel, then things start to shift and their whole sense of even identity begins to expand with the experience of awe, with compassion and with gratitude, which traditionally are called self-transcendent emotions. But I'm urging the researchers in that area to change the name to self-expanding because with all gratitude and compassion, you do really get this expansion of who you are and it's very health promoting and allows you to embrace uncertainty with a lot of excitement and energy. Dan, that is the best definition description I've ever heard. And I love it because I've always, I don't believe in certainty. I just, it's just me. I'm not saying it doesn't, it doesn't exist, but I just, I have now a, a level of understanding through experience that there is no such thing as certainty um, because I think we grasp it and, and then only to, to, to see it dissolve before our very eyes. Mm-hmm. Um Dan, this is amazing, this conversation. We could have you on the show for two hours, but I'm conscious of your time and we will ask you to come back on the show because you are so fascinating. And um, and I love the way that you describe things. Absolutely. So the way that we wrap up the show is we always love to ask our guests to leave three shiny golden nuggets for our uh, audience. So they could be like three hot tips or three practical exercises. Mm. Wow. Okay. Three nuggets. You know, I would just build on what we were just talking about, about how uncertainty is something to be embraced by identifying these three emotions that you can cultivate every day, making sure you tap into them. So one we talked about was compassion, right? 
of just letting yourself go from empathy with all those five features, you know, where you're sensing what's going on inside of someone else through a process called attunement, taking on other perspectives. It really expands your limited sense of self and starts getting bigger. And the compassion piece is even if it's about someone suffering, when we join with them at the level of sensing their suffering, making sense of it, and even just bearing witness for their suffering, instead of that person being alone or us being alone, we become part of a we. So compassion expands the sense of self. The second emotion you can cultivate every day, the second nugget, is gratitude. You know, really digging into your life and seeing what are the foundations of your life that, you know, one day, and I don't want to shock anyone, we're not going to be alive. But now, if you're listening to Catherine and me, you are alive and you're listening. So we have this incredible opportunity to actually tap into gratitude for these aspects of being alive, gratitude for another person, gratitude for the sunshine, gratitude just that we can breathe. It's a miracle that we're alive, and gratitude allows us to tap into the miraculous truth of our being here. And the third nugget um, would, would come to that third aspect of the emotions that expand the self, and that would be awe, A-W-E. And you can just do what my colleague Dacher Keltner calls awe walks, you know, where, you know, you can actually go outside and let yourself say, you know, I could just be ignoring this tree in front of me and just move on and go to my next appointment. But what if I just pause for just three seconds and look at the leaves of this tree? Look at the limbs, the branches of this tree. Look at its trunk. Look at those roots going down deep into this amazing earth. How does this all work that trees are one of the biggest aspects of the lungs of the planet? That because they are releasing oxygen as a byproduct, I actually get to breathe and release carbon dioxide, which they use as nutrients or food, fuel. Oh my God, what an amazing cycle this is. And here's this tree that I almost just passed by and then go on your way. You know, just a few seconds of awe just gives you that, you know, that feeling like, oh my God, I couldn't really understand it at first. Gave me maybe some goosebumps. And then there's this feeling of expansion so that you don't have to lose self. You actually can adjust an identity lens with each of these three, compassion, gratitude, and awe that allow you to feel into this larger sense of a we without losing the me. So we like to say we. And we thanks you. Oh, beautiful. So so well said. And I, I could relate to all three. I love that. Um, we, we will have uh, all the links in the show notes. And for our audience, uh, Dan has, uh, I think, about four books, which uh, you'll be able to find on his website, which I'm sure taps into a lot of the stuff that Dan spoke about today. Um, where do you hang out the most? Where could our audience find you? You know, my website, Dr. Dan Siegel, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com is probably the best starting place. And we have a school, the Mindsight Institute, which has classes and all sorts of resources for you. Great. 
Thank you, Dan. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Honestly, thank you for sharing your wealth of wisdom, your time, your energy. And I actually felt I really enjoyed this interview because I felt like I was on a cruise with you. Felt like there was a bit of a holiday happening while we were um, uh, co- uh, collaborating. So thank you so very beautiful. much. Oh, I'm on the cruise with you too, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please click on share show with your friends to help make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to get involved is to click on follow show or leave a review on iTunes so that we can give you a shout out on the show. If you have been a long time listener of the show, you know we are big on delivering content that is valuable for you. Content that will address your pain points. So if you have any questions or ideas for a podcast show, please reach out and we will create the content to meet your needs. Yes, you heard right. If you have topics, themes or special guests that you want to hear from, please send us a note to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will create a show especially for you. Wherever you are in the world, sending you love, blessings and peace. Namaste.